Section 5 Europe and the Faith This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc. Section 5 Chapter 1 Continued The Roman Empire was a united civilization, the prime characteristic of which was the acceptation, absolute and unconditional, of one common mode of life by all those who dwelt within its boundaries. It is an idea very difficult for the modern man to seize, accustomed as he is to a number of sovereign countries more or less sharply differentiated, and each separately colored, as it were, by different customs, a different language, and often a different religion. Thus the modern man sees France, French-speaking, with an architecture, manners, laws of its own, etc. He saw till yesterday North Germany under the Prussian hegemony, German-speaking, yet with another set of institutions, and so forth. When he thinks, therefore, of any great conflict of opinion, such as the discussion between aristocracy and democracy, today he thinks in terms of different countries. Ireland, for instance, is democratic. England is aristocratic, and so forth. Again, the modern man thinks of a community, however united, as something bounded by and in contrast with other communities. When he writes or thinks of France, he does not think of France only, but of the points in which France contrasts with England, North Germany, South Germany, Italy, etc. Now the men living in the Roman Empire regarded civic life in a totally different way. All conceivable antagonisms, and they were violent, were antagonism within one state. No differentiation of state against state was conceivable or was attempted. From the Euphrates to the Scottish Highlands, from the North Sea to the Sahara and the Middle Nile, all was one state. The world outside the Roman Empire was, in the eyes of the imperial citizen, a sort of waste. It was not thickly populated. It had no appreciable arts or sciences. It was barbaric. That outside waste of sparse and very inferior tribes was something of a menace upon the frontiers, or, so to speak more accurately, something of an irritation. But that menace or irritation was never conceived of as we conceive of the menace of a foreign power. It was merely the troubles of preventing a fringe of imperfect, predatory, and small barbaric communities outside the boundaries from doing harm to a vast, rich, thickly populated and highly organized state within. The members of these communities, principally the Dutch, Frisian, Rhenish, and other Germanic peoples, but also on the other frontiers, the nomads of the desert, and in the west, islanders and mountaineers, Irish and Caledonian, were all tinged with the great empire on which they bordered. Its trade permeated them. We find its coins everywhere. Its names for most things became part of their speech. They thought in terms of it. They had a sort of grievance when they were not admitted to it. They perpetually begged for admittance. They wanted to deal with the empire, to enjoy its luxury, 
now and then to raid little portions of its frontier wealth. They never dreamt of conquest. On the other hand, the Roman administrator was concerned with getting barbarians to settle in an orderly manner on the frontier fields, so that he could exploit their labor with coaxing them to serve as mercenaries in the Roman armies, or, when there was any local conflict, with defeating them in local battles, taking them prisoner, and making them slaves. I have said that the mere number of these exterior men, German, Caledonian, Irish, Slav, Moorish, Arab, etc., was small compared with the numbers of civilization, and I repeat, in the eyes of the citizens of the empire, their lack of culture made them more insignificant still. At only one place did the Roman Empire have a common frontier with another civilization, properly so called. It was a very short frontier, not one twentieth of the total boundaries of the empire. It was the eastern or Persian frontier, guarded by spaces largely desert. And though a true civilization lay beyond, that civilization was never of great extent nor really powerful. This frontier was variously drawn at various times, but corresponded roughly to the plains of Mesopotamia, the Mediterranean peoples of the Levant, from Antioch to Judea, were always within that frontier. They were Roman. The mountain peoples of Persia were always beyond it. Nowhere else was there any real rivalry or contact with the foreigner, or even this rivalry and contact, though the Persian War is the only serious foreign or equal war in the eyes of all rulers from Julius Caesar to the 6th century, counted for little in the general life of Rome. The point cannot be too much insisted upon, nor too often repeated. So strange is it to our modern notes of thought and so essentially characteristic of the first centuries of the Christian era and the formative period during which Christian civilization took its shape. Men lived as citizens of one state which they took for granted and which they even regarded as external. There would be much grumbling against the taxes, and here and there revolts against them, but never a suggestion that the taxes should be levied by any other than imperial authority, or imposed in any other than the imperial manner. There was plenty of conflict between armies and individuals as to who should have the advantage of ruling, but never any doubt as to the type of function which the emperor filled, nor as to the type of universally despotic action which he exercised. There were any number of little local liberties and customs which were the pride of the separate places to which they attached. But there was no conception of such local differences being antagonistic to the one life of the one state. That state was, for the men of that time, the world. The complete unity of this social system was the more striking from the fact that it underlay not only such innumerable local customs and liberties, but an almost equal number of philosophic opinions, of religious practices, and of dialects. There was not even one current official language for the educated thought of the empire. There were two, Greek and Latin. And in every department of human life there coexisted this very large liberty of individual and local expression, coupled with a complete and, as it were, necessary unity, binding the whole vast body together, 
complete. Emperor might succeed emperor in a series of civil wars. Several emperors might be reigning together. The office of emperor might even be officially and consciously held in commission among four or more men. But the power of the emperor was always one power, his office one office, and the system of the empire one system. It is not the purpose of these few pages to attempt a full answer to the question of how such a civic state of mind came to be, but the reader must have some sketch of its development if he is to grasp its nature. The old Mediterranean world, out of which the empire grew, had consisted, before that empire was complete, say, from an unknown, most distant past to 50 B.C., in two types of society. There stood in it, as rare exceptions, states, or nations in our modern sense, governed by a central government, which controlled a large area and were peopled by the inhabitants of many towns and villages. Of this sort was ancient Egypt. But there were also, surrounding that inland sea in such great numbers as to form the predominant type of society, a series of cities, some of them commercial ports, most of them controlling a small area from which they drew their agricultural subsistence. But all of them remarkable for this, that their citizens drew their civic life from, felt patriotism for, were the soldiers of, and paid their taxes to, not a nation in our sense, but a municipality. These cities and the small surrounding territories which they controlled, which I repeat were often no more than local agricultural areas necessary for the sustenance of the town, were essentially the sovereign powers of the time. Community of language, culture, and religion might indeed bind them in associations more or less strict. One could talk of the Phoenician cities, of the Greek cities, and so forth. But the individual city was always the unit. City made war on city. The city decided its own customs and was the nucleus of religion. The god was the god of the city. A rim of such points encircled the eastern and central Mediterranean wherever it was habitable by man. Even the little oasis of the Cyrenian land, with sand on every side, but habitable, developed its city formations. Even on the western coasts of the inland oceans, which received their culture by sea from the east, such city-states, though more rare, dotted the littoral of Algeria, Provence, and Spain. Three hundred years before our Lord was born, this moral equilibrium was disturbed by the huge and successful adventure of the Macedonian Alexander. The Greek city-states had just been swept under the hegemony of Macedon, when in the shape of small but invincible armies, the common Greek culture under Alexander overwhelmed the East, Egypt, the Levant littoral, and much more were turned into one Hellenized, that is, Greekified, civilization. The separate cities, of course, survived, and after Alexander's death, Unity of control was lost in various and fluctuating dynasties derived from the arrangements and quarrels of his generals. But the old moral equilibrium was gone, and the concentration of a general civilization had appeared. 
Henceforward the Syrian, the Jew, the Egyptian, saw with Greek eyes, and the Greek tongue was the medium of all the East for a thousand years. Hence are the very earliest names of Christian things, bishop, church, priest, baptism, Christ, Greek names. Hence all our original documents and prayers are Greek and shine with a Greek light, nor are any so essentially Greek in ideal as the four Catholic Gospels. Meanwhile, in Italy, one city, by a series of accidents very difficult to follow, since we have only later accounts, and they are drawn from the city's point of view only, became the chief of the city-states in the peninsula. Some few it had conquered in war, and had subjected to taxation, and to the acceptation of its own laws. Many it protected by a sort of superior alliance. With many more its position was ill-defined, and perhaps in origin had been a position of allied equality. But at any rate, a little after the Alexandrian Hellenization of the East, this city had, in a slower and less universal way, begun to break down the moral equilibrium of the city-states in Italy, and had produced between the Appians and the sea, and in some places beyond the Appians, a society in which the city-state, though of course surviving, was no longer isolated or sovereign, but formed part of a larger and already definite scheme. The city which had arrived at such a position, and which was now the manifest capital of the Italian scheme, was Rome. The end of section 5